Hi, I'm Ryan Becker, and you're listening to the Rock Hill Seventh-day Adventist Church Official Sermon Archive. You can find more information about our church at www.rockhillsdachurch.org. We hope by listening to this message that you are encouraged and challenged in your walk with Christ. So a few years ago, when I was in, when I was in high school, so more than a few years ago, six, seven, eight years ago, I had this, this weird ability, and it's followed me since, to put on this face of confidence when I have none and convince someone of something that had absolutely no basis in reality. And here's what I mean by that. One day I was, one day, actually this is when I was teaching, I'll, I'll share this story with you. I was teaching and I was in charge of an improv drama group at this high school that I was working at. And one of my friends had come in as a guest presenter that day. He was helping us with, with some improv activities. And, and when you're speaking in improv, you have to be very, uh, especially in, in religious improv, you have to be very clear about the words you say. You have to be very clear about the way you say them because you don't want to send a signal or say a word by accident that would be inappropriate. And so this one sketch they were, they were going through, my friend said the word class. And I immediately, after the, after, the, after the sketch was done, said, hey, we need to make sure that if we say any words like that, that we're very careful about the way that we say them and make sure that we have emphasis in the right place and that we communicate the right thing. We wouldn't want anyone to hear something that we didn't mean to say. And one of my students, thinking he was clever, steps in and says, like grass. And I said, no, no, don't say that word. And he said, what? So I looked at him and I said, my friend over there can't say the word grass. See, when he was little, he was climbing up in a tree and he fell and landed on his back. And ever since then, he's had this like weird mental block where he can't say the word grass. It's like it was a really traumatic period for him. And, my, and this student looks at I love this student to death. He's a good friend of mine to this day. I, I pray for him all the time. And he looks at me. He was a junior at the time. And he says, are you, are you serious? And I said, yeah, just w- watch, watch right now, I'll, I'll show you. And so I, I, I shout over to my friend, he has a very weird name, so I'm not going to say it, but I shout over, I'm like, hey, isn't it true that you can't say the word grass? And he goes, I love this, he goes, yeah, I can't say the word grass. <sighs> and my, the student looks, he goes, it's true. <laughs> like, come on, he just said it, but... But in this moment, this was one of those moments where I learned that as long as I had a serious enough face, I could convince someone that, of something that was true that wasn't. I had another time in high school where, where I was sitting across from a friend of mine in the yearbook room. We were working on some yearbook pages, and I said, you know, I have a, I have a secret to tell you. She said, what? I said, my, this isn't my actual talking voice. She goes, what? And I said... Yeah, my actual talking voice is way up here, but I talk down here so that people don't make fun of me. It's been a really hard struggle for me every day to, in class, and every, every time I'm talking with someone in conversation, to intentionally bring down my voice. But normally I talk way up here, and it's, it's a struggle, and I got made fun of a lot in middle school for it. Talking like Mickey Mouse, and, and she looks at me, and she gets these, these, almost starts crying. She says, I'm, I'm so sorry that happened to you. 
I, I can't imagine what that, what that must feel like to have to change your voice. And immediately I lost it. I just, I couldn't keep it up anymore. But she believed me in that moment. Because there are times where something is presented to us in a way that is so concrete in a, and in a way that is so evident and gives us every reason to believe it, that we buy into it. And I'm not saying that what I did was right. Don't go lying to people. That's, that was years ago. I don't do that anymore, I promise. But there are times where what's, what's being sold is bought by us because of the confidence that it's sold with. Because of the evidence around us that makes us think, hey, maybe there's something to this. One time I convinced someone I was their imaginary friend and that I didn't actually exist. You can ask me for that story at a later time. And the reason I share those is because I believe it's really important as we, as we dive into Nehemiah chapter 1 this morning. Now, in the Old Testament, God and Israel had this very weird relationship cycle. Here's what it looked like. Israel would follow God. Israel would turn away from God. So God would send them into captivity to another nation. Sometimes this would last for generations. And then Israel would repent. God would come and save them and bring them back home. And the cycle begins all over again. This is basically the Old Testament over and over and over again. And in Nehemiah, we find ourselves near the end phase of this cycle. When, Babel, when, when, when Israel was, was captured by Babylon, years later, Babylon gets invaded by Persia, owns Babylon, which means now Israel is, in, is owned by Persia. And for the last 30 years or so up to this point, Persia has been allowing different groups of Israelites to go home and begin rebuilding because Persia doesn't actually care about what happens in Judah and in Israel. So they say, yeah, go, go back, go, you can go rebuild your home. And so the first group of survivors goes back with Zerubbabel about 20 years before Nehemiah. The second group goes back with Ezra about 10 years before Nehemiah. And now we are at Nehemiah. We're going to start reading in verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem, the city that was being rebuilt. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. To an ancient city, its walls and its gates were everything. It was the only thing that kept invaders out. Because if they can't see over those walls, they don't know what's waiting for them on the other side. They kept people out. So a city without walls was basically doomed to be invaded and taken over. Jericho, when its walls fell, was invaded and taken over in less than a day. It takes no time at all to capture a city in the Bible that does not have its walls and its gates intact. 
And so knowing this fact to be true, knowing that its walls and its gates have been destroyed by fire, in something that has been trying to be rebuilt for 20 years, Nehemiah's response in verse 4 is somewhat now understandable. He says in verse 4, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah knows that God has been fulfilling his promise to return Israel, sorry, Israel home. And yet now all of that work seems like it's been put in jeopardy. And he sees this tension where he says, God, you promised this, but I'm seeing this. And when framed that way, that is not a dilemma we are unfamiliar with. There are times where I've looked at my life and I've said, God, you've promised me this, but I'm seeing this. How do I reconcile these things? And that's what I want to address this morning, is how do we reconcile? How do we deal with that tension that exists between sometimes our reality, what we view around us, and our faith when they say opposite things. I'm going to share with you a struggle that I recently had. It is something that I decided to wait until after I knew more about before I brought it before you, but I told those that needed to know at the time. Me being 23 years old puts me in the prime age group to be at risk for testicular cancer. And back in July... I found a lump. And so, at first, I was not going to worry about it. At first, I was just going to be, I I didn't want to deal with it because there's a lot of stigma around wanting to deal with anything with that part of your body. You don't want to go have anyone inspect it. You don't want to go deal with it. You just want it to just kind of stay under wraps and hope it goes away. But I knew what responsibility should dictate that I do. And so, shortly after moving here, I went to an urgent care doctor and got it checked. He thought it was 50-50 cyst or tumor, and so he gave me antibiotics that were supposed to shrink it if it were a cyst. And so I took those antibiotics faithfully for a week. They made me super nauseated every time I took them, morning and night. And by the end of that By the end of that bottle, there was no change. Now, I've had a concrete calling from God to ministry, to go into ministry since my junior year of high school. That was like seven years ago. And I've known it to be true that God wanted me in ministry. I've been solid on that. And all of a sudden this summer, I've been seeing these great things happen where I was supposed to be in Michigan, but thanks to you guys and thanks to York, and thanks to what God has been doing here, I'm here instead of in Michigan, and I'm able to do active ministry alongside you. And knowing my family history, that my mom struggled with lung cancer, that my dad died of a heart attack, that my grandfather on my mother's side died of cancer as well, I know, those, I know that the risk of me having cancer is not out of the question. And though there were no other symptoms other than that one lump, 
Cancer has this unique way of, of scaring every part of you. Every backache, every footache, every slight pain, every cough, every runny nose, everything makes you think, am I dying? And I imagine for those who have battled cancer and survived it, that fear is a hundredfold, at least. For my mom, I know it was true. And so this was the tension that I was in. When those antibiotics ran out and I scheduled an uh, a follow-up appointment with a urologist, this is the tension I was in. God, I know you've called me to ministry, but have I come to this city to just die? Now, it doesn't mean that cancer always is a death sentence. It's not it. But that possibility was real, and it was in my mind. It was something I was afraid of. And I couldn't see a urologist for two weeks. So I had to wait and wait and wait and just sit in this fear. And the night before my appointment, I couldn't sleep. I was praying. I was scared, and I felt really alone. And no matter how many people I had supporting me, it still felt like it was my battle. This is an example of that kind of tension where I see that, God, you've told me all of these great things are supposed to happen or you've shown me all of these great things are supposed to happen and yet all of that seems like it's in jeopardy. So the next day I went to the urologist, that was September 7, and I bring you good news that it is just a cyst, it's harmless, I am in full health, and I am great, and I am praising the Lord for it, that my fears were never realized. But what if they had been, right? How do I deal with it then? And so we're going we're gonna to continue through this, because as Nehemiah is dealing with this tension, he begins to pray. And we're going to read that prayer. And so if you've just joined us, we're in Nehemiah chapter 1. And we're in verse 5. Nehemiah chapter 1, and we're reading verse 5. And so Nehemiah is, is mourning because his city is in danger. And here's his prayer. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. In verse 7, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. And listen to this, and I, and I think this is the crux of the entire prayer for me. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. So I'm going to put that into perspective for now, for right now. And if we were to read that in, in today's language, Nehemiah is basically saying this. Listen, God, I know that we messed up and I know that we don't deserve to go home. We've all sinned. Me and my father's house have sinned. But I also know your promise 
that we would return home, that if we repent, as I am doing right now, that you would bring us together and bring us home. And in his prayer to God, he acknowledges this and he's frustrated. And he's angry and he's doubting because while his city is being rebuilt and has been being rebuilt for 20 years, he's now seeing the promises of God in jeopardy. God, I thought you were going to protect us. God, I thought you were going to do this. And God, I thought you were going to do that. God, I thought you were like this. But what I see around me doesn't match that. This is the struggle of Nehemiah. So how does he deal with it? He continues reading, he continues praying in in verse 10. They are your servants and your people, Israel he's talking about, whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. This man is King Artaxerxes. He is the king of Persia at the time. And that chapter ends with, I am cupbearer to the king. And cupbearer is the person who basically drinks the wine and tests all the food before it goes to the king to make sure it's not poisoned. What Nehemiah does in the face of this tension is instead of leaning on that reality that he sees before him, he leans on his faith instead. And I'm not saying that that's easy. Because this continues. There's a reason I read that weird month called Kislev. Because in, in the beginning of chapter 2, he says in the month of Nisan, that is, that is four months later, Nehemiah has to sit on this tension, this fear, and this pain that at any moment his, his home could be destroyed and overrun again. He has to sit on that fear for four months before he gets his opportunity to talk with the king. Sometimes sitting on your faith requires waiting. And we don't always know how long that waiting is going to be. But if you're going to take one thing away from this morning, let it be this. When your reality and your faith are in tension, when they clash, lean on the promises of God that you know. That He loves you, that He is with you, that He cares about you. Lean on those Do not lean on your reality because here's the unique thing about the Christian faith. Here's also the thing that makes it absurd. Why I love it so much. Christianity teaches this. Your faith has the power to become your reality. For Nehemiah, it was this. Lord, grant me favor in the sight of the king. I am going to have faith that when I talk to the king, he will release me to go help my people. And four months later, when that opportunity comes, the king releases Nehemiah to go and lead a group to rebuild those walls. Your faith has the power to become your reality. 
And that sounds fanciful, and I know that people would, would laugh at me for saying it. I have friends that would say that just sounds ridiculous. That's kind of the point. It is ridiculous, and it, that's why it's so hard to believe in. That's why it's so hard to lean on those promises and that faith. But God is asking us to trust in Him. Even if my diagnosis had been cancer, this sermon would not be different. The only thing that would be different would be what I shared with you. But it wouldn't, the message would not change. If I had to go through chemo and radiation, this message would not change. Because if God has placed a calling on your life, God will be the one to see it through. And if God has promised to take Israel home, then Nehemiah needed to believe that God would see that through. And so he commits himself to being a part of that in whatever way that he can. Now, if you're wondering why I say your faith has the power to become your reality, I'm taking that from a very specific verse in Matthew 17. You don't need to turn there. Don't worry about it. It's Jesus is talking. And in verse 20, he shares this. It makes us a little uncomfortable sometimes, but I love this verse. He says, I tell you the truth. If you had faith even as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it would move. Nothing would be impossible. If we're so adamant about taking Jesus at his word, and all these other areas of our life, this should be no different. I'm not saying go, go out to Asheville and go move a mountain. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. That might cause some other issues. What I'm saying is, whatever battle that you are in, lean on your faith and lean on the promises that you know God has made. And if you don't know those promises... Maybe it's time to look those up. Maybe it's time to find out what God really does want for your life in, in this moment or in this struggle or even in this celebration. I want to end with this because this is the reality of faith that I believe God can and I believe God will. But even if he doesn't, I still believe. Your faith has the power to become your reality, to transform it and to become real. So together as a church and as individuals, let's lean on that faith.